Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Over the last two to three years, there's been an explosion in understanding and exploiting the biologic oncology of this uncommon but important solid tumor, and the June 2006 ASCO meeting in Atlanta included a number of fascinating new data sets in the field. In Atlanta, about two hours after the last renal cell session, I gathered faculty members Dr. Ronald Bukowski, Dr. Janice Dutcher, and Dr. Nick Vogelsang, along with community-based oncologists Dr. Bill Harwin, Dr. Lowell Hart, Dr. Charles Henderson, and Dr. Atif Hussein for an impromptu series of case discussions. But immediately prior to the session, I met with Dr. Vogelsang for an update on developments in the field. About 85% plus or minus of all kidney tumors are clear cell, but they grade differently, right? A one is a lot different than a grade three and a grade four. In those other 15%, there were all these weird looking tumors that we didn't know much about, chromophobe and papillary and medullary and all these odd names. What we've finally discovered is that in the clear cells, most of them are mutated von Hippel-Lindau. Not all of them, which is either we don't know how to look or they're there, but they're not there. Maybe they're really not there. Maybe there's another gene. In the other 15% or 20%, there's all these different genes. Fumarate hydrogenase, MET, Berthoog-Debay, other transitional cells. The non-clear cells, we don't know how to treat. We still don't know how to treat. We have a glimpse that the non-clear cells are erlotinib-sensitive, interestingly. In the clear cells, we know that they're now responsive to agents which inhibit the VEGF pathways. Let me walk you briefly through the VEGF pathway. So the mutated gene was discovered in 1993. We knew in 78 and earlier that there were families with clear cell carcinoma. There was a report by this very unknown urologist from MD Anderson by the name of Van Eschenbach who wrote a paper with some guys down there in the early 80s showing that there was a chromosome 3 abnormality in these families. Then they started looking more and more and realized that the von Hippel-Lindau syndrome also was on chromosome 3. And somewhere in the mid-80s, the light clicked and said, If there's some families with renal cell that have chromosome 3, and if there's von Hippel-Lindau disease that has chromosome 3, probably those are linked. The story of von Hippel-Lindau disease is that these people have hundreds, two thousands of little tiny cysts in their kidneys, in their pancreas, and in their cerebellum. Many of them develop hemangiomas of the cerebellum, or in very distinct families, some get pheochromocytomas and some get kidney cancer. And what's the mode of transmission? It's autosomal dominant. So when you have an autosomal dominant, you should be able to get the gene in most of the family members. Over a period of about eight years, the group at NIH collected these von Hippel-Lindau families and identified the gene as VHL. It is found on chromosome 3, band 21, and it led to an outpouring of science about renal cell carcinoma. How many of these cancer cells really have the VHL mutated? So remember, we have two chromosomes. Every chromosome's paired, right? So that means you have two copies of VHL. One is mutated, and the other is usually silenced. In the von Hippel-Lindau families, they're both mutated. 
That's why they're osmal dominant. But in sporadic renal cell carcinomas, there's one mutated and one is silenced by what's called epigenetic mechanisms, methylation that makes the gene be bypassed by RNA. In the sporadic, is this defect found in all cells or just in the kidney? Only in the tumor, actually. In the tumor, right? Only in the tumor. It's a specific somatic mutation. It's not found in the germlines. The difference is a germline mutation means that you'll get von Hippel-Lindau disease. A sporadic mutation means that you'll get only in the kidney. Now, there may be some pheochromocytomas that are also VHL positive, but I don't follow that field and don't really know that well. And what's the pathogenesis in terms of what happens when you have an abnormality in that gene? It was unclear what it did. It is a ubiquination enzyme. A fellow by the name of Varshowski discovered that that was how cells mark proteins to get out of the cell. They put a protein on a protein, and the protein is called a ubiquitin protein. You put a string of these ubiquitins on a protein, and it basically flushes down the toilet. And the toilet is the proteasome. So von Hippel-Lindau is a ubiquination ligase. It ties a ubiquin protein to another protein. What it primarily does is it ubiquinates the very important enzyme called hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF. HIF goes up when you're under hypoxic conditions. So what does HIF do? It controls nearly 200 proteins. It's a pretty important protein and gene. It controls literally things like glucose transport and erythropoietin production and VEGF production, etc. And obviously, hypoxia-inducible factor is primarily in the kidney. You think about it, if you go to live in Bolivia at 14,000 feet, your hemoglobin goes up. And where do you make hemoglobin or where do you make erythropoietin? In your kidneys. That was discovered at the University of Chicago in the 50s, that the kidneys produced erythropoietin. Why? Because that's where HIF primarily lives. In a hypoxic environment, you raise your erythropoietin, you raise your hemoglobin. You also produce more glucose transport, etc. It's a slowly adapting but very effective system. Now, under the conditions of an abnormal VHL, HIF is not normally eliminated. It sticks around. And instead of just being flushed down the toilet because it's not needed, you know, most of us aren't going up to Bolivia every day this HIF protein starts shooting up. It's not ubiquinated. It's not targeted for destruction. It then becomes more active and produces all these 200 or so proteins that it controls. One of them happens to be VEGF. Now that should, as you start thinking about VEGF, you go, wow, if there's 200 proteins, what's so magical about just blocking one of them? And therein lies part of the problem of kidney cancer. We now know that of the clear cells, 70-80% of all kidney cancers are clear cell. A majority of them are VHL mutated. Therefore, it is probable that all these new agents, Sutents, Serafinib, and VEGF, anti-VEGF, only are working on those kidney cells that produce HIF or that are producing HIF-driven proteins. The non-clear cells and probably some of the clear cells are not producing any of these proteins. Let me see if I can make it a little bit simpler. You would probably break clear cells down into the two categories, VHL mutated and VHL non-mutated. We don't have an easy way to just quickly measure that in the blood or in the protein. You know, we just don't have a way to do that. So when you see a patient and you biopsy their kidney and it looks really god-awful, 
you go, well, it's probably a grade four. Let's say it's almost sarcomatoid. Well, what does that mean? That means that the VHL protein and the VHL gene is probably still there, but the whole cancer may have evolved away from the need to live off of the HIF pathway. Therefore, the hypothesis is that the very well-differentiated renal cells will be responsive to these agents, and the very poorly differentiated aggressives will not. And that was one of the abstracts at ASCO this year. The Bintay's group from Van Andel Institute reported that if they do microarray, looking at all the genes, what's the most commonly regulated proteins? The HIF proteins. They include VEGF, PDGF, and recently a number of other people have reported carbonic anhydrase 9 is an upregulated protein. If you think about all of these proteins, you'll see that they're better expressed in the well-differentiated tumors And as they get further away, they probably get outlaw pathways, pathways that don't really need carbonic anhydrase and VEGF and EGF. They probably find pathways that are much faster and more efficient for them to stay alive. Now, is that relevant just in primary disease or also metastatic disease? good question. We normally have tissues only available in the primary site. So Binte and others have been biopsying the metastatic sites. And in fact, they're pretty good correlations. So, for example, I had a recent patient who presented with a thyroid nodule. Turned out, after a large workup, to have bilateral renal cells, small lung nodules, and a thyroid met. Well, that was an extremely well-differentiated tumor, grade 2 clear cell. And I asked him how long he'd had the thyroid nodule. He would said, five years. He's all worried about his kidney cancer. He's going to die tomorrow. And I said, guess what? You've had it five years. You've already had metastatic disease for five years. And I know you have a slow-growing cancer. And it looked like a slow-growing cancer in the thyroid. And I biopsied his kidney. It was a slow-growing, well-differentiated clear cell. He should respond to the VEGF agents. Which one did you use? I picked serafinib for him. Why? Because he was 72, and I wanted something that would be easy on him. It's pretty easy. I want to tease that out a little bit more as we get into the algorithm for metastatic disease and whether it's changed in the last couple of days. Can we go back also and track out where the VEGF pathways and the various biologic agents that we've seen activity in, sort of how that works with the tumor? Sure. So back to the story of von Hippel-Lindau mutation, followed by HIF overexpression, followed by overexpression of some 200 proteins. Why did VEGF happen to work? Well, VEGF seems to be one of the major factors that's upregulated. But EGF is also upregulated, and PDGF is also upregulated, and glucose transports are upregulated. So all of those provide targets. Really, it was serendipity. There was an antibody, (laughs) Avastin, being developed. Jim Yang said, I know that VEGF is upregulated because he was part of the team that developed the HIF story. Actually, Bill Kalin developed the HIF story, but... He said, let's try VEGF. Placebo-controlled trial, low dose slowed the cancer down, and high dose definitely slowed the cancer down. Not PRs, but slowed it down. And so it was New England Journal of Medicine, 2003. And everybody's going, yeah, but it was only a 10% response rate. What is that? The reason it was published is because it was such a critical finding for the molecular biology and the clinical treatment. It linked the molecular biology of renal cell to clinical treatment. Now, we've known for decades that renal cell carcinoma is hypervascular. Walt Statler and I at University of Chicago did this trial of the aspergillin toxin. 
that we thought it was going to affect the vessels. And we were actually one of the first ones to try to theoretically tackle just the vessels. It took me two years to talk the company into doing a phase two in renal cell. Unfortunately, we didn't see anything. But the idea of attacking the blood vessels rather than the tumor itself is probably why VEGF works so well. What's the cell of origin with clear cell? It's a proximal tubule cell. So it's where erythropoietin is made and where proteins are reabsorbed. Renal cells always had the reputation of being a little bit different. You know, you see these patients, as you just described, who presumably have had metastatic disease for quite a while, a bunch of different syndromes. This may seem like kind of a naive question. Can you just sort of talk conceptually about clear cell carcinoma specifically? I mean, compared to some of the common tumors we deal with, breast, lung, colorectal cancer, particularly in terms of why it doesn't respond to chemotherapy. Well, the way I describe it is that it arises from the tubule, which is bathed in acidic, awful urine. Think about it like a leathery, thick-skinned cell. It's got to survive in an acidic, toxic environment. It's living in urine. (laughs) Think about that. So if the tubule cell is living in urine or nearly like that, it is a tough cell. These cells also overexpress a lot of P-glycoprotein. P-glycoprotein is the transport protein to help get proteins from the urine back into the tissues. Remember the P-glycoprotein story? That story is still relevant. P-glycoprotein was discovered by Tony Foho and the guys at the NIH in the 80s, and the highest expression was in biliary tract and renal tubule. So the kidney and kidney cancer cells vastly overexpress P-glycoprotein. And that's probably why drugs like Taxol, Adriamycin, the apophalones don't work. It's my belief that that is why the antimetabolites work. Gemcitabine works. Capecitabine works. Not very well, but certainly at a 10 to 15% rate. That's probably why Olympto works in renal cell. Okay, Olympta's just come in as a 10 to 15% drug because they're not transported by the P glycoprotein. And therein lies the dichotomy. Renal cell doesn't respond to chemotherapy, and therefore everybody pursued other things, cytokines, non-traditional chemotherapies, and lately these VEGF agents. Let's talk a little bit about mechanisms of some of the agents that are leading people to get cautiously excited, I guess, in terms of clinical research, particularly the TKIs. I think people are pretty sensitized already about bevacizumab, maybe thalidomide. Can you kind of put that whole picture together? If you start with the belief and theory that chemotherapy is not going to work, you can look back at the history of the development of renal cell and you go, well, they started on vaccines and that led to IL-2 and at the same time interferon. You remember the cover of Time magazine, 1981, the drop of interferon story. Well, Casada developed interferon and it was one of the interferon responsive cancers and became the standard because we had nothing better. Interleukin-2 was too toxic or too hard to get. And interferon emerged. In spite of a lot of studies, nothing was able to beat interferon. Megase couldn't beat it. Cell therapy couldn't beat it. Vaccines couldn't beat it. We even did vinblastine against interferon, and vinblastine couldn't beat interferon. So interferon really did evolve as the standard of treatment. 
Then we started going, what else is there? And then came these targeted agents because they were readily available. There was a logic behind them. They were blocking the VEGF pathway, and it was known to be a VEGF-producing tumor. So immediately comes to mind, as soon as these agents have a glimmer of activity, even a little bit of activity, serafinib has only got a modest response rate, as does sunitinib. It may only be 20-25%. They said, we got to compare it to interferon. And at this ASCO meeting, there were, of course, all these interferon presentations comparing this to interferon. And that was the lead story. Bob Mozart presented the interferon versus sunitinib and basically said, the era of interferon is now over. And sunitinib has displaced it. And I'm sure the other targeted agents would displace interferon just as well. So can you summarize some of the key data that were presented and particularly how you think that will influence your own non-protocol algorithm? For the standard upfront patients, we have to remember that these cancers grade differently. There's grade 1, 2, 3, 4. And we also know that they walk in the door with bad performance statuses and odd bad things looking at them. LDH is sky high, or they've got liver metastases. So there are a variety of staging systems. The UCLA system is the one I like with Ari Beldegren and Bob Figlin, but Mozer and the Sloan Kettering group have put one together, and Cleveland Clinic has put one together. Most commonly used is Bob Mozer's because he put it together first. And it's good, it's simple, it works. And what you do is you basically take a patient, you don't worry about their grade. You say, is their kidney been out? Yes or no. How long ago was their kidney taken out? Was it more than a year ago or less than a year ago? Is their LDH up? Is their hemoglobin below normal? And is their calcium above 10? Oh, there's also in their performance status. If it's anything less than zero, that's it. And if you have three or more of those factors, they're poor risk. You take the good risk patients who have only one or two, zero or one of those factors. That means somebody who's had their kidney out, somebody whose hemoglobin, calcium, and LDH are normal, people who only have one-sided disease, really feeling quite good. Those patients have a very good survival, and you could treat them with a relatively non-toxic, easily tolerated agent, Sutent, Serafinib, are equally good, I think, although they haven't been compared yet. Serafinib has been shown to extend life in second line. Sutent has now beat interferon in progression-free survival, but hasn't yet been reported as an overall survival, although we all believe it will be an overall survival advantage. Turning then to the idea of interferon and serafinib or interferon and sutent, the SWA group this afternoon presented interferon and serafinib and showed by Chris Ryan's paper about an 18 to 20% response rate That's better than I would have expected, but not as good as sunitinib. Whether there's a difference there, it's probably just selection bias. The SWOG patients tend to be a little sicker and a little worse prognosis. So that would be what I would suggest for the good and intermediate risk, either a serafinib or sunitinib drug. And we'll talk about how you select one or the other later. What was also very interesting at this meeting was the very poor risk patients, the patients who walk in with high LDHs, liver metastases, low hemoglobins, performance status of one or two, and they look bad. What fraction of patients fit that? That generally is thought to be about 10 or 15%, but in some practices, especially in lower socioeconomic groups, it may be 25 or 30%. Certainly that was what we saw in the south side of Chicago. We saw a lot of advanced, really sick renal cells. For those patients, most of them have not even been entered into 
the Sutent or Serafinib Nexavar trials, and everybody just assumed that they would be entered into those. But about four or five years ago, Wyeth was developing a drug that that time was targeting the mTOR pathway. Well, mTOR regulates HIF as well. mTOR is like a rheostat for what nutrients come into the cell. It regulates amino acids and other things. And it says, wait a minute, you don't have enough nutrients in here. I'm going to have to shut you down. mTOR is not like the suicide gene, like P53. mTOR is like the quartermaster saying, sorry, not enough nutrients. You, Mr. HIF, cannot be making as much HIF. So it regulates HIF and other things. What this does is in a cancer cell, which is wildly producing HIF and all these other proteins, if you shut down mTOR, which is what these drugs are, you lower their nutrient, you lower all of these protein levels. Now, we don't know everything there is to know about mTOR and inhibition. But anyway, that was the theory. So Matt Sherman and his team at Wyeth went to Mike Atkins and a bunch of us around the country and said, would you please study mTOR in renal cell carcinoma? And at that time, we didn't have any of these other agents, serafinib or sutent. All we had was interferon. We said, you bet. We studied 111 patients, Jan Dutcher and myself, and a bunch of other of us were on this paper. And we had a very interesting result. It worked. Not a lot, but it was a 10% drug. And it seemed to most likely affect the patients who had this really bad cancer. Their expected survival was nearly doubled by the group of patients who got the mTOR inhibitor. There was no difference in the dose level. We did three dose levels quite far apart. And so that is Wyeth then said, well, why don't we do a phase three in poor risk patients? And I sort of rolled my eyes and said, oh, come on, they're all going to be dead in three to four months. How can you possibly expect this to be effective? Plus there were rare cancers, only 20 or so percent. So remarkably, at this meeting, Gary Hudis and his team reported the mTOR drug at 25 milligrams IV every week that inhibits mTOR extended life. But, Can you pronounce uh, it incidentally? Temcerolimus. It's like rapamycin. It's an IV version of rapamycin or rap immune. If you've ever done any allotransplants or any organ transplants, people are on rapamycin. What are the side effects and toxicity? Skin rash, anemia, fatigue, diarrhea. It's not an easy drug, but it's not difficult. I mean, it's not a myelosuppressive or pulmonary toxin type drug. Do you see the drug coming on the market? Very quickly. This is going to be very fast track. Just specifically for this unusual Absolutely. situation. Absolutely. This is an unmet medical need, and it'll go fast. Well, let me finish the story about Gary. So they randomized these men, mostly men, by the way, to a large, they did all the LDH things, et cetera, et cetera. The trial did very well. It went from July of 03 to April of 05. It accrued, I don't know, tons of patients, 600-some patients. They did them into three arms, interferon alone, temcerolimus alone, and a combination which had lower interferon and lower temcerolimus. Pretty well balanced. And what they found is overall survival for the temcerolimus group was 10.9 months, substantially better than I would have expected. I expected five or six. Interferon actually did better. It did 7.3 months. And the combination was 8.4, not much better. And most of those patients seemed to come off because of toxicities, probably not being able to tolerate the combination. But the confidence intervals were non-overlapping. The hazard ratio was 0.73. 
and the progression-free survival was doubled from two months to four months in the poor-risk patients. Now, you know, this is like a mild advance. You know, it's not like we're making major headway. Were there any patients, for example, that you took care of who got only this agent who had impressive responses? I didn't actually join this trial. I joined the earlier one. But yes, the answer is the drug gives you a skin rash, and it's IV every week, so it's a bit of a pain. But I remember a patient that was from South Bend who was literally on this for two and a half years. Jan Dutcher was telling me about one of her poor-risk patients who was on it for nearly four years. These are people with responses? Yeah. Well, responses, but not big responses, you know? A little bit of shrinkage, a little bit of no growth, maybe a little reduction of this or a little reduction of that. It's odd. It's very clear that you can make these people live a long time without shrinking their tumor. Let's talk about the biggest debate that's going to come out of this meeting, which is what's the current first and second line therapy for the rest of the patients with the better risk tumors? I would argue that it doesn't matter what you do first. If you need a response, want a response for your or the patient's psychological benefit, liver metastases or pain in the bone, I would probably go for the drug with the higher response rate, which is Sutent. Do you think that's real or is it maybe a function of how the trials have been done? It's a function of how the trials are done. But I do know that the objective response rate at six weeks is higher in sunitinib than with serafinib. And frankly, if we had the auguron compound, axidinib, or some of those, I might even go for that first. But when you say you know that, that's from indirect comparison. It's indirect comparison. They've never been compared. What about the side effects and toxicity profiles, and not just the numbers, but what really happens to these people right. in terms of quality of life? Well, I don't have a lot of experience with sunitinib. I've only treated maybe a handful of those patients. I've treated a lot more with serafinib. Serafinib, when we first got the drug at University of Chicago in the randomized phase two, was a remarkably easy drug to give. Skin and hair were the primary side effects. You get some hair loss, you get some skin rash, little diarrhea, very mild hypertension. Where's the skin rash? It's diffuse, more commonly on the hands and feet, like a hand-foot syndrome, but it can very often be diffuse. One of my patients is a tennis player who's out in the sun a lot, and his skin has sort of become leathery. Usually symptomatic? Yeah, it can be quite symptomatic. Itchy or what? Itchy, yeah. Itchy, dry. So when they talk about hand-foot syndrome, is that hand-foot syndrome or is it this rash? It is the hand-foot syndrome, but there's also the rash. So the combination of the hand-foot syndrome and the rash can be annoying to patients. So if you have an elderly patient who's already a bit impaired and doesn't have the ability to tie his shoes or has a neuropathy, serafinib may not be the right drug for them. Can you give me a rough number, you know, about what fraction of patients who get serafamid who come back and say, you know, I'm having no side effects whatsoever, no problems? It's probably only 15 or 20 percent. So the typical patient has some kind of problem with their skin and hair. Right. Diarrhea is also pretty common, but that's with both drugs. I mean, I think the diarrhea is common for both of the drugs. And just to finish out on the serafinib, is this dose-related? Do you reduce the dose that goes away? It does, but I would be careful with dose-reducing. I know that I have done it, and yes, it is dose-responsive, and yes, the pharmacokinetics suggests that 200 twice a day is almost the same as 400 twice a day, but we just don't have enough data on that dose reduction to know if it's safe. I would try to hold a patient at 400 twice a day for a good six weeks if you possibly can. So let's flip back to the other side of it. What fraction roughly of people on serafinib, you know, really have problems and you have to take them off it or consider them taking them off it? 
Very few actually have to come off. In the placebo-controlled trial from Escudier, only 8% had to come off. Usually, it's really rough to control diarrhea and hard to control hypertension. So for most patients, it's kind of an annoyance, but they can live with it. I agree with that. What about sunitinib? Sunitinib has more of an acute effect. It's got sort of mouth sores. Anorexia is a big feature. People feel sick. They do get diarrhea. And interestingly, they get much more bone marrow suppression get anemia, or they apparently get more bone marrow suppression. They get leukopenia, thrombocytopenia. It's a little bit more like a Gleevec is the way I sort of look at Sutent. What about fatigue? It seems a little higher on the Sutent than the serafinib. The reality, though, and I don't want to jump the gun on this, is that as we've just learned from Brian Reaney's comparison and others, that you can get from one to the other and you'll get responses both ways. So really all you're doing is an A, B, or B, A sort of game. And same kind of numbers on sunitinib, if you had to guess, what fraction of people have no problems? What fraction of people have a lot of problems that make you consider stopping treatment or decreasing the dose? Um, I think it's about the same, about 10 or 15% run into trouble. But most of us can dose modify. Now, one of our posters looked at continuous sutent at 37.5 milligrams a day. It comes in 12.5 and 25 milligram and 50 milligram pills. So you can dose at 37.5 every day. Sutent is currently supposed to be dosed at four weeks on, two weeks off. And where did that come from? That's a long story of the hypertension and the diarrhea, trying to modify Hmm. it. There was some concern. I've heard the story why that happened on several occasions. More toxicity related? It was toxicity related. Right. And what's the difference chemically between the drugs and in terms of what their mechanisms of action are presumed? Okay. So chemically, they are distinct molecules. They're both inhibitors of tyrosine kinases. They're quite different, and as you would expect of different chemical moieties, they're going to have different side effect profiles. For serafinib, it inhibits VEGF as a protein kinase, and it inhibits CRAF, which is a downstream effect. It also inhibits BRAF and other things that are below VEGF in the signaling pathway to make the endothelial cells grow Sunitinib inhibits VEGF and PDGF. It inhibits two of the proteins directly controlled by HIF. And therein may lie one of these reasons for a slightly higher objective response rate. Any rationale consider using the two together? People have started that train of thought. That's called a vertical blockade, blocking it at same ways with different drugs. The combination of bevacizumab and serafinib is being looked at. It's had excessive toxicities in the phase ones. Hmm, What kind of toxicity? It's been GI perforation, bleeding, but dramatic effects. Elsa Cohen at the National Cancer Institute reported some spectacular responses in very far advanced ovarian cancer patients with melting of tumor and GI, gut fistulas, et cetera, et cetera. So the combination has not been officially reported yet. I missed some of the phase one trials. Maybe there was a phase one that I missed, but I think there hasn't been anything specific in renal cell yet reported of sort of a VEGF antibody and a VEGF oral inhibitor. So you were mentioning this patient you saw that you start on serafinib. Do you feel any differently now about that decision or those types of decisions in the face of what you've seen here at ASCO? I think I will continue to modulate for the patients who are asymptomatic and who don't have a lot of risk of hypertension. I would just put them on serafinib, I think. And for the patients who I really want to see a response, who may have some pain or liver metastases or bone pain, I'm going to use Sutent. 
can you tease out a little bit more? Because you hear this a lot, this concept of, quote, serafinib is, quote, a little bit easier on the patient. Mm-hmm. But yet the numbers you just described, right. it doesn't. And, of course, you all are seeing all these people. So we try to pull it out of you. What is it that you're seeing right. that makes you feel this way? It's just anecdotal reality. You know, the patients I've had on Sutent, for example, will immediately start feeling better if they have pain or anorexia from their cancer. It's rather quick. It may be within a week or two. Hmm. That's like what's seen with the lung cancer with erlotinib. Exactly. I mean, on occasion. On occasion. It's very quick. Now, they'll very quickly also get fatigue and stomatitis and some leukopenia. Is this improvement in symptomatology the rule or the exception? I think it's pretty common. No one has really looked at the speed with which that occurs in Sutent or Serafinib. My experience with serafinib is that I've mostly used it on fairly asymptomatic patients, so it's a little hard to quantify it. I've tended to go sutent for symptomatic, serafinib for asymptomatic, and that may be a false dichotomy, but that just seems the way it's worked out for my practice. Is it your feeling that in the long run, the ability to control a tumor is essentially going to turn out to be equivalent, but it's more the response or symptom improvement that you think you're seeing with a sunitinib? Yeah, the platelet-derived growth factor is the one thing that sutent does that serafinib doesn't do. And as you imagine, these tumors evolve, right? If they're well-differentiated grade one, by the time they get to grade four, they may be sort of virulent and only use a few pathways. If the VEGF and PDGF pathways are more commonly used in the advanced cases, having a dual blockade in those patients may in fact induce a response differently than serafinib. I honestly think that all of these tumors are going to find a way around this blockade. We are not getting complete responses. We're not getting cures. And they will almost all become resistant to these drugs. And you'll have to switch to the other alternative drug. Brian Reaney reported that you get clear-cut objective responses after bevacizumab therapy is given for Sutent. He showed data from the Cleveland Clinic's practice patterns that if you failed serafinib, you can respond to Sutent and vice versa. And I've heard that from other docs as well, that they have clear evidence of a serafinib benefit after Sutent failure and vice versa. What do we know about response to these and other agents in terms of first versus second versus third line as the tumor progresses? Hmm. We know nothing. (laughs) What do you think the story is? I think that there is going to be a period during which the cancer adapts. I don't think that the VEGF, PDGF, CRAF pathway is the only pathway these cancer cells can live by because if it were, they would go into CR. They clearly have alternative pathways. And what we're doing is blocking one of, you know, if the analogy is a four-wheeled car, we're popping one of the four tires or maybe two. The cancer fixes the tires and keeps on going. So we almost inevitably are going to have to find ways to get the other tires. That's where the mTOR inhibitors are coming in, see? So everyone now wants to go serafinib plus mTOR, sutent plus mTOR. They should be easy to give, except skin rash may be overlapping. There may be some liver issues that overlap. So the phase ones have to be done now, is combining serafinib with the mTOR inhibitors. There's three mTOR inhibitors out there, and there's two or three or more of the VEGF inhibitors. Where are we in terms of predictors of response to these agents? We're getting much better. Really? Yeah. If you can biopsy these tumors, Ari Beldegren and his team and Mac Aitkins and Bob Mozer have all shown us that if you can show that CA9, that's one of the proteins upregulated by HIF, 
overproduced because of HIF upregulation, is still expressed in the tumor. It is almost certainly a VHL mutated tumor and appears to have a substantially better prognosis. Now, we haven't done a formal study where you biopsy all the tumors, stain for CA9, and then use that staining pattern to predict outcome. But that would be my hunch. And what kind of technology is involved in that type of assay? It's just a biopsy. Biopsy the tumor and do an immunohistochemistry. It's immunohistochemistry. But you got to get the tissue. Isn't there tissue normally? Yeah, but it's in the kidney. And like I said, there may be evolution. We have one patient, for example, who had CA9 positive in the kidney, responded IL-2. When he relapsed, he was CA9 negative. And so the tumors can evolve with time. Interesting. I've heard that there is an adjuvant trial. Is that actually happening? Yep. It just activated. Who's Uh, doing it? It's intergroup. ECOG, Naomi Haas, and the surgeon at Fox Chase are handling it. It's going to open through all the cooperative groups, and it's randomized to nothing versus serafinib for a year versus Sutent for a year. So we will ultimately get a toxicity estimate of serafinib versus Sutent after a year of therapy. And what's the eligibility? It's really quite broad. It means anybody with a positive lymph node, anybody with positive vein invasion, anything with a T3 tumor that is outside Jura's fascia, it's not going to be for the garden variety four-centimeter tumor that's taken out laparoscopically. So what fraction of tumors do you think will be eligible for this? Uh, I would say about 30 40% of all kidney tumors. With what kind of predicted relapse rate without treatment? They're using a variety of models, but the European trial, which is three years of serafinib versus one year versus zero years, is using the Mayo Clinic predictive model. Naomi Haas and the ECOG have put together a model that looks like the Mozart and UCLA combination. But, I mean, overall, considering the eligibility, what would you predict the placebo arm would have a relapse rate would be? That will be hard to predict. Overall, the relapse rate of all renal cancer is about 40%, 40 or 50%. In this selected group, the relapse rate should be higher, 60 65%. So you're going to have a lot of events. Right. There should be a lot of events, but it may take three or four years. And it's got to have 1,500 patients, so it's going to take a long time to get the answer. You mentioned the issue of whether or not the primary is intact as a predictive factor. Can you talk a little bit about the biology of that and sort of the lore of we've always had about the effects of removal of the primary metastatic disease? Right. So the Flanagan paper published in the Journal of Medicine showed that in very high-performance status patients who underwent a nephrectomy, they had a survival advantage of about five months over no nephrectomy. I think it was six months versus 11 months or something. Why that happened was unclear. Most people believed in the face of metastatic disease that it was the equivalent of a surgical PR. That was sort of the thinking. And you were just simply debulking the majority of the cancer. The folks from Mount Sinai in New York looked at their series of just nephrectomy in the face of metastatic disease and reported that when the nephrectomy removed approximately 90% or more of the bulk of cancer, they had a substantially better outcome than if the nephrectomy produced less than a 90% overall tumor burden reduction. What about actual responses in the METs? They don't respond after a nephrectomy. I mean, there's anecdotes, but I think that is just literally radiographic variation. And some of this could be tumor emboli that were showering from the kidney. And as you take the kidney out, those emboli stop. Because I've seen a patient actually die from a renal vein thrombus of cancer that wedged in her pulmonary veins and died of a saddle embolus. Wow. 
In fact, at the autopsy, she had a saddle embolus of renal cell in both pulmonary arteries. 